Hi, my name's Andy, and thanks for watching today. Before we get started, we wanted to fill you in on our church. Here at Grace Community Church, we have a mission and purpose. Our goal is to point people towards Jesus. If you are looking for a church, we would love for you to be a part of what God is doing here at Grace. There are a couple different ways for you to start getting connected to Grace. You can check us out on Facebook, Twitter, or YouTube, and more information about service times and smaller groups can be found at ohiograce.com. We would also like to invite you to one of our Sunday morning services. These times are 8.30, 10, and 11.30. We have a great time gathering for music, hanging out, and learning about who God is and how that affects our lives. Thanks for watching, and we hope to see you next week here at Grace. Short, ruthless people. <laughs> Actually, uh, we've also made the decision to hire Jess, Jessica Kaiser in her place. I don't think Jess is in here right now. She's in less service. But, uh, and, and again, just like Mindy, somebody who's already, we just looked at, at the, the short list of the people who are doing the bulk of the ministry. And, and, uh, and so we're excited about Jess starting. Mindy's going to be around for, she'll be in and out for the next two weeks or so. And, and just going to come on board, and that's kind of what's happening there. Well, I want to dive in to Galatians. And we, last time I was here, which is two weeks ago, it was a great Sunday. We saw 32 people baptized. 20 people came to faith. A lot of things are happening in our church. We're actually in the middle of all these camps for youth. We've had a few, and one group, a high school group, just left today, and there's some more coming up, these weeks of, of camps, and I think through that, uh, I, I think I heard that about 15 of our young people have become Christians in the last few weeks, and, and so God's moving, things are happening, and, and we appreciate him doing that through grace, and last Sunday, we got to hear from Forrest as he jumped in our series and covered Galatians chapter 2, and today, we're on Galatians chapter 3. And so I'd invite you to turn there and uh, as we look at what Paul has to say to us. And before we get there, I want, I want to tell you a story. And, and it basically is a story about being a jam. The question is this. Have you ever put yourself in a predicament where you realize there was nothing you could do to get yourself out of it? Have you ever got yourself jammed up where you couldn't save yourself? You couldn't, you couldn't fix it. And so for me, I have a story like this. It involves climbing. When I was young, I ha had a buddy named Scott, and, and we spent a lot of time in the mountains. He was a better climber than I was. And, and we were out hiking, and then the hike, af after we hiked for a while, we started doing something called bouldering. And then after the bouldering, that kind of turned into free solo climbing. That's just a fancy way of saying I was too stupid to bring equipment. And so that's free solo climbing. And, and we were doing this. And as we were doing it, there became a time where I became stuck on a cliff face. And so no equipment. He's ahead of me. He's a more advanced climber. He's, he can do pull-ups on a, a door jam. You know, I can't do that. He can climb the inside of a brick wall. But anyway, he's Spider-Man. But he was doing this, and, and so I'm following him. And then I get to the spot where I can't move. So I'm on a cliff face, and, and we call them nubs. There are these little golf ball-sized projections 
that's just rock that you can get a little traction on, but they're not real, they don't really hold you up well. It's not a, a solid grip. You kind of push this way on this nub, and this toe pushes that way on this nub, and so you're clinging to the rock face. Well, I got in a spot where I couldn't go anywhere, and I was plastered against the face of the rock, and I realized that I, I couldn't move. I couldn't even turn my head because of the balance and because I didn't have enough traction on my, my grips to even move my head back an inch, it would just pull me off. And so I, I'm stuck, and I have no options. I can only see one direction. There's nothing that I can grab. I have no handhold, no foothold that's substantial. I can't turn my head, but I'm reaching and feeling, and I can't feel anything. I'm about maybe 100 feet up, and there's nothing below me except for rocks. And then I know I'm going to fall. I know there's nothing I can do. So I'm noticing there's a top of a tree behind me. And I'm realizing when I do fall, I will shove off as hard as I can to land in the top of this tree. And then that will kind of break my fall as I bounce down the limbs. This is not a good plan, by the way. It was just the only plan that I had and so I'm just stuck. And I don't know if that's ever happened to you in any realm, climbing or anything else, where you've worked yourself into a spot and you come to the conclusion that there is nothing you can do to save yourself. You are stuck. That is exactly what Paul wants everyone to understand as they read the book of Galatians. That is all of us. Whether we realize it or not, we, have all, we are all in this position where we are heading for destruction and there's nothing we can do to save ourselves. I'm on this rock face and now my legs start to shake. Because they're getting tired. And so staying is not an option. I'm coming off. And if you've ever climbed on a rock like that, it's, it's harder to climb down than up. So backing down is impossible. That's not, not even an option. You're just stuck. This is what Paul, here's what Paul's saying. We are all in this position. We are all desperately clinging to a rock face. We are heading for destruction and there is nothing we can do to save ourselves. And we're going to see that in chapter 3. Now as we go through chapter 3, Paul is going to tell us some stuff here and I've kind of organized it through some questions that he answers as he works through this chapter. But really the first question is, is Paul's asking the question and he the other ones are questions that we might have that Paul's answering through this. But the first one, Paul's just asking this question. He's saying, what are you thinking? He, he's, he's so bummed at the Galatians. He's saying, what are you guys thinking? What's going on? How could you do this? He actually asked six questions in the first five verses because he's stunned at what he has heard from the Galatians Church, and I'd like to start in Galatians chapter 3, verse 1. <coughs> what? Okay, I've coughed a few times. I started last Sunday. And 
I, they have this water every Sunday for me, and I've never taken a drink to keep me from coughing, so it's uncorked. They actually, between services, put a sign here, water bottle. <laughs> I'm not kidding. It's a sign this big. Water bottle. Kevin, water bottle. Okay. Ah, yeah, that's nice. All right. Verse 1. Are we ready? I'll be using that. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified, this is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? So then, does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? So Paul uses these six questions to scold the Galatians on what he has heard is happening as they've followed these Judaizers, these people. And, and, but what Paul's doing in here is he is defending the most important message in the universe, the most important message on earth. Paul's defending this. He's laying out his argument. And the most important message on earth, it's really very simple, but it's also counterintuitive. It's not the way we would think it would be. And because of that, most people completely misunderstand the gospel, even though it's very simple. Most people completely misunderstand it. And so Paul is clearing this up because now the Galatians, whom he has already preached to, who have already become believers... Now they seem to be abandoning that message of the gospel, that simple yet counterintuitive message, and they're clinging to what makes sense to them, which is no gospel at all. And so that's what's happening. And that gospel, of course, as I use it, if you're new, is, it just means good news. We talk, we talk about it a lot. It's just the good news. It's the good news that even though that, that we are not right with God, we got out and couldn't save ourselves, we had outside help. We realize that we're created and God wants a relationship with us, but he wants it based on truth. And so he reveals truth to us, and that's what's moral, what's right, what's wrong. He gives that all to us. But as we start looking at that, we realize that, wow, that puts us in a predicament that we, we're all guilty and we deserve judgment. So the good news is that God has made a way to get us out of that predicament to save us when we can't save ourselves. So to put it another way, it's like this. The false teachers have now come in after Paul. And they're saying, oh, you have faith in Christ. Great. You have faith in Christ. Now you need to observe some law stuff and then you're going to be right with God. You'll be saved. Oh, you have faith in Christ. Now do some lost stuff and you'll be saved. You'll be right with God. 
But that's what the false teachers are saying. Paul came and told them something else. Doesn't sound that different, but is actually a world of difference. It's opposite. Paul said, have faith in Christ. Then you are made right with God. And then that will help you obey the law. Two and three are switched there. So that's what he's saying. It's the most, and, and, but when you do what you did with the false teachers, say, oh, faith in Christ, just do some law stuff, then you're going to be all right with God. You have gutted the gospel. You have completely messed up the gospel. You re, you've reversed the gospel. So now Paul is arguing against those who are giving this false teaching. And they're Judaizers. There are people that say, well, you've received Christ, but you need to do some of this Jewish stuff. And then to make his case, Paul uses the father of the Jewish people, Abraham. So he goes right back because he knew that would resonate because they know all about Abraham. But here's the next question that Paul answers for us. When was the gospel first revealed? When did mankind... When did we first find out about the gospel? Because I think a lot of us, we tend to think, well, that would have happened in the first century. That would have happened in the New Testament time period. But really, Paul's teaching us something different than that. Look at verse 6. So he goes, he, he makes his case with Abraham. He says, even so, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Even so, Abraham believed God and was reckoned to him as righteous. No, it's kind of interesting the, the way Paul uses the words because Paul doesn't say Abraham believed in God, although sometimes it says that in the Bible. He says he believed God. And, and there is a difference, especially the way we use that phrase. People today, when they use the phrase, I believe in God, what they mean by that is I believe God exists. But you can believe in God without believing God. But you can't believe God without believing in God, right? So you can believe God exists, but not believe everything he's telling you. But on the other hand, you can't believe everything God's saying and not believe he exists. If you believe God, you already believe in him. But if you believe in him, that does not mean that you believe God. And here's the thing. Believing in God does not save us. Believing God saves us. That's what we need to understand. And that is what Paul is using as an argument. So he uses this term, which I love this term. It, it's not always retained. It's King James. Some, some modern translators use it and some don't, but it's reckoned. Abraham believed God and was reckoned to him as righteousness or credited to him or accounted to him as righteous. And when you get into this, when you get into the Greek term here, it, it's a purely accounting term. And it just means that this was credited into your account. This money was given to you. It's yours now. Righteousness was accredited, was reckoned to Abraham. And we have to be careful because a lot of times we think Abraham did something and somehow because of his faith or because he believed God or because of his uh, submissiveness to God or something, that somehow he kind of earned that righteousness. No, that's not what it's saying. It's clearly saying just the opposite. Abraham was not righteous, but he was credited as being righteous because he believed God. 
And so that reckon thing, I remember when I first started college, when I was a senior getting ready to go to college, which I wasn't sure I was going to go, but you fill out a bunch of forms. I didn't have any money, so you, and some of those are like financial aid forms. And then later my senior year, after filling all those forms, I got a job. Worked the job all summer, knew I could work the job on through school. And so I show up to school, and I, I go to school, and I realize, I look at my bill, and I've been given like 300 bucks from the government to go to school. But then I'm like, oh, where'd this come from? Oh, the government gave me this. But actually, I have a job. They probably gave me this because I didn't have a job when I filled out those forms. So I went over to the business office of my school, and Colorado State is what that is now, and, and I went in and I said, hey, I got this money, but actually, I have a job. I actually got a job just like a month after I filled those forms out, and so I shouldn't be getting this. And they said, well, you get this because of what it was based on when you fill out the forms. And I go, yeah, but I got a job now. And they say, well, you already have this money. And I said, well, I need you to get it back, you know, take it back. And he said, we have no way to take this money back. And I said, you have no way to take the money. How do I give the money back? You can't give the money back. It's in your account. And I said, well, what's this for? He said, this is for this semester, and you're going to get more money for next semester. And I said, well, I don't want more money for next semester because I already have a job, and I shouldn't be getting this. Somebody else should be getting it. Okay, we can stop you getting it next semester, but we have no way of taking this back for this semester. It's not a, a problem many of us usually have. You know what I'm saying? You're giving me money. And so what happened there? It was reckoned to me. It was accredited to me. I didn't earn it. I didn't even deserve it. I just got it. Why? Just got it. Weirdly, couldn't even give it back. Abraham, that's what Paul's saying. Abraham didn't deserve righteousness. He didn't earn righteousness. He wasn't righteous. He got righteousness because God gave him righteousness, accredited, accounted him, looked at him, saw him as righteous. So when we receive righteousness, we're still sinful people. It's just that God sees us differently. Our status has changed before God. Now, Watch how this continues in verse 7. So he's still using Abraham as this example to teach against these false teachers. Verse 7. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. What's he saying? Be sure it's those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. What he's saying is it's not you people who have been descended from Abraham physically... It's you who believe with faith. You're the true sons of Abraham. Anyway, verse 8. The scripture for... Now we're getting to the question. When, when did the gospel first show up? The scripture for seeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. So then... Those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide in all things written by the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary... He who practices them shall live by them. Talking about the law. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become 
a curse for us, for it's written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. And Gentiles just mean all non-Jewish people, which is most of us. God saw all this in advance. That's what he's saying. Now, when Paul is using this story of Abraham, something is coming to mind to the first century church people in Galatia. Because they know their Old Testament. That's all they have now. The New Testament hasn't been written and documented and given out yet. They have the Old Testament and they have the gospel. And they know about Abraham. And probably the foremost thing that comes to mind as we work through this passage is an event that happened in Abraham's life. If you'll remember, after creation, then flood, Abraham's in the Ur of the Chaldees, and God calls Abraham to this new land he's never seen before. And Abraham, he believes God and he goes with God. And then God tells him, man, I'm going to bless you. And as a matter of fact, you're going to have a ton of descendants. And actually, a whole world is going to be blessed by you, specifically through one of your descendants. That's all going to happen. Now, in the meantime, Abraham, he's, he's going with this. He's following God, but he's getting older and older and older. And pretty soon, he's way beyond childbearing years. And so is his wife. And so he's talking to God. And God says, hey, my promise is still good. And he says, how's that going to happen? It's all Genesis 15. How's this going to happen? How's it going to happen? And he says, I, I don't have an heir. Actually, the heir to my estate when I die is going to be one of my hired hands, Eliezer, you know, because I don't even have any flesh and blood relatives. And so God says, no, that's not the way it's going to go down. I'm telling you, you will have an heir from physically from your own body. And then he tells Abraham, hey, go out and look at the stars and all this stuff. And he says, as innumerable as the stars are, your descendants going to be. And then Abraham's like, how, is, how will I know this is going to happen? And God says something very interesting. Genesis 15 again. God says, well, here, I'll tell you what. Go get a, go get a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, uh, a pigeon, and a, and a dove. And so he gets these animals. And then God doesn't tell him anything, but Abraham knows what to do. What he does is he takes the largest three animals and he kills them and he cuts the carcasses in two and he lays them out side by side. So he splits the heifer, one side here. That's a gory, messy process. One side here, one side here. And then the female goat, one side here, one side here. And then the, the ram, one side here, splits it one side here. And so there are the carcasses and then he waits. And he waits and he waits and then toward the afternoon, the buzzards come in, and he keeps the buzzards away, and he waits some more. And then, about evening time, God shows up. And Abraham goes into a deep sleep, and then he, and kind of, he, he's troubled, and darkness overcomes him. And then God starts revealing to Abraham what's going to happen to his descendants, which involves he's going to have a bunch of descendants, but they're going to go into slavery for 400 years in Egypt, and he's telling them all this, but then they're going to come out of that, and they're going to plunder the people because God's going to judge that nation, and then they're going to wander for a while, and then they're going in there, and then God's going to judge that other nation by giving that land back to Israel and all this stuff. So all that's going to happen. And then after all of that, I want to catch this last verse of Genesis uh, of that story in Genesis 15. It's just 15, 17. It goes like this. 
And it came about when the sun had set that it was very dark and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. Okay, very interesting. See, the reason Abraham split these carcasses is because he knew in ancient times that's what they did to make a covenant. So say two kings were going to make an agreement and they're saying, yeah, we're going to do this. I promise to do this. They would split these carcasses and then they had walk through the carcasses between the two halves and it was a way of saying, if I don't keep my end of the bargain, let what happened to these carcasses happen to me. And so it was huge. Now, once in a while... It'd be a king who conquered another king, and one king had all the power, and the other king didn't have any power. And then what would happen is maybe only the weak king would walk through the carcasses, because basically he's saying he's making all these promises, and the strong king's not promising anything. You know, he's just saying, you got to do all this, and I'll let you live kind of a deal. And so that'll happen. But here's what I want us to notice. Abraham lays this all out, but God never asks Abraham to pass through the carcasses. God comes and passes through the carcasses in an oven, a flaming fire. He comes and goes through. And when he does that, when God does that to Abraham for him, what he's saying is this is a promise covenant. This is not a deal. This is not a you have to do this, I have to do this. I'm going to do this. And it's a way that God is saying I am going to keep this promise to you and you don't have to do anything. I'm going to keep this promise to you. And so serious, I'll keep this promise even if it kills me. I will keep this promise. It goes dark, it all happens. And as a matter of fact, it was a few thousand years later, there's another day when darkness overcomes the earth. And that's when God dies to keep this promise that God made to Abraham. And Jesus gave up his life for us. Salvation is not cooperation. Salvation is an offered gift to all of us it's not a bargain that we have to uphold our end. It's a promise covenant that God extends to us. Jesus is our substitute. And we get into all this curse stuff and that middle section there. What's happening here is Jesus becomes cursed for us. Jesus substitutes himself he takes on the curse that we have earned. And he gives to us the righteousness that he has earned. He takes our curse so that we could be... He was treated as a sinner so that we could be treated... He was treated as a sinner even though he wasn't so that we could be treated as righteous even though we're not. That's what's happening there. But here's the next question that we might have as we work through a text like this. Well, hold it. 
If Paul is pointing out that the gospel, the kernel of the gospel existed with Abraham, Abraham is way before the law. Abraham, remember, he starts having, sure enough, he has kids and they have kids and then there's 75 of them. Then they go down, you know, there's Joseph and they go down to Egypt. And then later they're enslaved for 400 years. And then they come out after those 400 years. That's when the law happens. Well, if the gospel happened before the law, why the law? Why do we need the law if the gospel was already there first? And what's going on is the Bible's one book. It all fits together. And we've got to understand that God created us, and he created us as human beings special, that he wants relationship with us, but he wants that relationship with us based on truth. And for us to know truth, he has to reveal to us. And as he reveals truth to us, he reveals what's right, wrong, what's moral. And so we get all that, and that's the law. The problem is, as we look at all that stuff, we realize that we do not make the cut, that we are not righteous, that we have issues. So why the law? Well, the purpose of the law is to lift the lid off of our supposed respectability. The purpose of the law is for us to be able to see ourselves the way we actually, truly are, but we don't like to admit. The purpose of the law is to reveal ourselves to ourselves that we are sinful, that we are rebellious, that we are guilty and deserving of God's judgment, which is separation from him, and we are helpless to save ourselves. That's what the law tells us. Now, one of the main problems that, that churches today have, especially churches in America, is that churches today tend to soft-pedal sin and judgment. But you cannot soft-pedal sin and judgment without doing violence to the main message of the gospel. You cannot soft-pedal sin and judgment without destroying the message of the gospel. Because we have to see ourselves as who we really are to, for the gospel to make sense. We cannot bypass the law and come straight to the gospel. Because we can't appreciate the gospel until it's first revealed to us who we really are and how desperate we are for outside help. And that we can't save ourselves. So God makes this promise to Abraham. Abraham believes God. And because of that, it, God accounts Abraham as righteous. Doesn't mean Abraham is righteous. He's not righteous. People make the mistake of thinking, well, maybe that Abraham did that. That somehow earned him some submissiveness to God that he accomplished. No, it's just the opposite. He's a sinner. He's not righteous, but he's counted as righteous by God simply because he believed God. And it, it's interesting because then people will say, well, if that's what it is to become a Christian... If it's, it's not what I do, it's just that faith thing. It's just believing God. Well, how much do I have to believe him? Or how much faith do I need to have? How much faith is saving faith? 
I'll give you an example of that. Back to the rock face. Some of you are probably wondering what happened to me. So back to the rock face, right? My buddy Scott, he makes it up to a ledge above me so he can actually stand up and do this. He's on, he's on this ledge, and he's above me, and he's looking over, and he can see where I am at down there, and he tells me, Kevin, because I'm stuck. I can't even look up to see him. He says, Kevin, there's a bomber about a foot to your right, and a bomber, or a bomber jug, I mean, a bomber means a great handhold that you can like swing on, like a great, and a jug, bomber jug, which this was, was like where you can even put your fingertips down in it. You know, it's like, nice, solid. You know, he's, there's a bomber just to your right, just out of your reach. Grab it. And what, and what this means, technically, this involves what rock climbers call a dyno, which means dynamic movement, which means this. You got to let go. A lot of movement in rock climbing is you have two or three points holding you and you have a free hand and then you grab and then you pull up and you got some free spot. And you, this, a dyno, is you let go of everything to grab and, and propel yourself and grab something, which is great if you grab it. But if you don't grab it, you know, that, and that's what makes it hard. So I'm there on the rock face. And he says, there is a bomber a few inches out of reach by your right hand. You can, and of course, here's Scott. You can do it, man. Go for it. Go for it. You know, I'm calculating, okay, if I'm all busted up at the bottom of this cliff, you know, would any, I'm not going to be able to hike out of here, so I'll probably just bleed to death on the trail. You know, you're, that's kind of what I'm thinking. Because I can't jump into the tree, which was also a bad idea, if I'm jumping this way. So, all you have to do is let go of all the little nubs that I'm trying to get traction on as my legs are shaking and I'm getting fatigued and I can't stay there much longer anyway and grab this bomber, this huge, great handhold. And so I do it and it works. I can pull my whole body up on this one handhold. And that's what's true for all of us. You see, to be a Christian, remember, my head is this way and the bomber is that way. And I have to let go of all the things I'm clinging to and reach out and grab something that I know is there but I cannot see. I know it's there because God's telling me I can see it. It's right there. And that's what God wants from us. How much faith does it take to be saved? Just enough faith to grab on. No special skills. No athletic ability. You just got to grab it. Anybody can grab it. It's just a few inches out of your reach. Because... What saves us is not the strength of our faith. What saves us is the strength of the rock. See, once you cling to that, you're set. That's all you needed. How much faith do you need? You don't need much faith at all. 
just enough to grab on. And God does everything, all the strength. You don't need strong faith at all. You just have to believe and grab on because what saves you is the strength of what you're putting your faith in. And that's what, that's what Paul keeps trying to reemphasize to these people. Faith is not a work. And, and here's, because we can get this confused, and I've talked about with this with people. You know, well, faith is kind of something you're doing. I mean, you're, you're reaching, you're, you're thinking, you're believing. No, faith in the Bible, faith is not a work because it's actually putting your trust in what someone else has done, not what you're doing. That's what makes it not a work. You're putting your trust in Jesus rather than yourself. So then last question. So if this is the way it is with faith, and this is the law is just to show us how jacked up we are, then how do we live in light of the gospel? How do we live in light of knowing there is a law and there is a gospel and we're saved even though we can't do the law? How do we live? Well, when you respond with faith or belief or trust, God credits you as righteous when you put that trust in Jesus. But we, we still struggle with sin. We're still sinners. We're still unrighteous. So how do we better follow Jesus in the way we live our life? Well, Paul here gives us this radically simple answer. And basically what he's saying is the way you become a believer, which is that faith, that grasping on, that's the way you live out your Christian life. It's the same answer through faith. And so when we come to the law, what, what do we do with that? Well, we obey the law not out of a have-to for our salvation. We obey the law out of joyous gratitude. And by the way, joyful gratitude is a much better motivator than um, fearful compliance. And we all know that because... Would we rather do something we have to do or something that we get to do? We, we want to do things we get to do. That's what the law becomes. It shifts from being something we have to do in order to help with our salvation to something that we get to do in joyful gratitude as we follow God knowing that the law can't crush us. Because here's what happens. If we approach the law with this thinking that keeps infiltrating our minds that somehow we've got to, to do to be right with God. When we approach it, some things happen. First of all, we always minimize the law. We will never feel or understand the full weight of the law if we think that the way we're made right with God is through law obedience. Because we will always minimize it. We'll downplay it because we'll say that's impossible. So they can't be the way. So we will always minimize, downplay the law. The only time we can really appreciate the fullness of the law is when we realize our obedience to the law cannot save us. 
then we can appreciate the full weight of the law without it crushing us. Do you see that? If, if it's not for the gospel, we'll look at the law and we'll either minimize it or it will crush us like a bug as we try to do it. No. Now the only way we can approach the law is through the gospel. So we can, fully, we can fully appreciate the whole law. Even when Jesus comes and comments on the law and says things like, oh yeah, no adultery, yeah, but I'm telling you, if you lust in your heart and only you know it, you've committed the same root sin. You're still liable for judgment. Oh, you haven't murdered? Yeah, but if you're, you're just ticked off at somebody, same sin, same judgment. And we can appreciate the full weight without minimizing it. We don't have to be crushed by it because we know it's not our compliance to the law that saves us. And then we can approach the God in truth, realizing the law for what it actually is, and then in joyful gratitude, follow him by doing what he wants us to do. That's what God wants for us in our lives. Let's stand together and we'll close in prayer. In a crowd this size, it might be that some of you are sitting here and, wow, I, I don't know if I've really responded to faith or crossed this line or whatever. You know, what I'm saying is if you have never just trusted Jesus for your salvation, realize that you contribute nothing. That's what you need to do. That's what faith means. If you want to talk about that, I'll, I'll be there and some of the other pastors will be in room one. After this prayer is over, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness. Thanks for loving us. We thank you for creation. We thank you for everything you've done. And God, we thank you not only for creating us, but wanting a relationship and revealing truth to us so that we can be honest about ourselves. And then when we are helpless to save ourselves, you made a way through your strength. And all we have to do is respond in faith. God, we thank you for that greatest gift. And Lord, help us to follow you in grateful joy. Because that we can know truth. And we can live the way you want us to. More and more. Through the strength that you've given us that we don't deserve. Thanks for loving us like that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Hope to see you next week as we continue in Galatians. Thanks for being here. Have a great day. Thanks for watching and we hope to see you next week here at Grace.